Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity we have now to take time from our busy days, to focus on you, to focus on your priorities for our lives, your plan for our lives, that we might learn how to live in such a way that we glorify you. So, Father, now as we look into your word, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make all of these truths clear to us, we may see how to apply them in our lives, and that we would be honest with ourselves as we face the mirror of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We've been making our way through the epistle of James. major theme of this entire epistle is that of perseverance or endurance. The key word there is the Greek word hupa mone. You know, the last time I threw one of these away, I tossed it over here and I was told there was a trash can under here. It's not there anymore. Okay. Hupomene. Why did I grab the wrong one? Keep grabbing it. H-U-P-O, there we go. M-O-N-E. This means endurance, persistence, perseverance, It has the idea of a long-standing or continuous obedience in the same direction. This is the goal in the spiritual life. This is the key to to, um, growing in spiritual maturity through the filling of the Holy Spirit. James writes in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith. And there it's a testing related to the doctrine in your soul. Faith, we saw, has two meanings. An active sense, which relates to believing God, believing the promises of God, mixing our faith with the promises of God. Or it has a passive meaning, a passive sense to it, which is the idea of what is believed. Often we we ask someone the question, what is your faith? In other words, what do you believe? And that is the point here. It's a testing, not simply of your ability to believe God, but of the doctrine in your soul that you can recall in the midst of that test, apply it to that test, and that produces endurance, persistence, hanging in there in times of difficulty. And let endurance have its completing result that you may be complete complete and whole. That's how it should be translated, not perfect and complete. The Greek word there for perfect is teleos, which has to do with bringing something to completion. And the second word has to do with being whole, that is being being a whole in your spiritual life. Sin has fragmented us, and the restoration comes through application of doctrine. Lacking in Nothing. Now, we have to review those three verses because of the last phrase. Let endurance have its completing result, that you may be complete and whole, lacking in nothing. But, verse 5, where we are studying right now, in contrast, if any of you lacks wisdom. So, the writer of this epistle recognizes that in your spiritual growth, after phase 1, at salvation, where you trust Christ, as Savior, faith alone, in Christ alone, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Then we enter into phase two, which is the spiritual life. In the spiritual life, we advance through various forms of testings. As we go through these situations of tests, we then have opportunities to apply doctrine. As we apply doctrine, we then Uh, persevere and endure and the result of that is that we progress towards maturity 
completion uh, in our spiritual life. But if you lack wisdom, and this begins, as I said last week, with a first-class condition. In Greek, there are many different ways, four different ways to express a conditional clause. A conditional clause in English is expressed by an if clause. And what this means is if and you will. That's the sense of a first-class condition. So what James is telling us is, if any of you lack wisdom, and you do. In other words, every one of you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to run up against a test at one time or another, probably continuously in your spiritual life, where you lack the doctrine you need to apply to that situation. If any of you lacks wisdom... Now, in order to understand this, we have to explore what the Bible teaches about wisdom. Not in its entirety, but just hitting the high points. We're going to cover the doctrine of wisdom, which we began last last Wednesday night. So let's review. I think we got through the first um, three or four points last week, but let's review and add a few thoughts as we go along. Point number one. The biblical doctrine of wisdom derives from the Hebrew word chokmah. This is what it looks like in Hebrew. This is C-H-O-K-M-A-H. Sometimes it is translated skill, and at other times it is translated wisdom. These two ideas go together. For the Jewish people think very concretely about life. So for them, wisdom isn't some kind of abstract philosophical knowledge, which is what, how the Greeks looked at wisdom. So the, the Greek word here is the Greek word Sophia. S-O-P-H-I-A. Where we get our English word sophomore, meaning a wise fool. Sophia. But the Greek concept of wisdom is something that is very abstract. It's very philosophical. It's not necessarily down-to-earth and practical. But that's not the view of the Jews. Now, it's important because I think some people can get a little carried away with Greek at times. And it's important to realize that the writers of the New Testament were all Jews and they all came from a Jewish background. Paul, Luke probably was Jewish. Uh, Mark, Peter, Matthew, John, all were Jews. They wrote from a Jewish background. So, uh, for many of them, the Apostle Paul probably was a simultaneous bilingual. He grew up speaking Hebrew. He grew up speaking uh, Aramaic and Greek simultaneously. But for the other writers of Scripture, Greek was a, a second language which they acquired later in life. So their primary thought forms were shaped by the theology of the Old Testament. So when you come to look at certain words in the New Testament, it's more important to discover how they were used and what they meant in an Old Testament context than in a Greek context. And wisdom is just one of these concepts. Now, I've been doing a little more studying since we began this, our study of this epistle on the backgrounds of this epistle. And one of the things I recently uh, discovered is that as we look at chronological issues in, uh, in the New Testament, our Lord was probably crucified, I'm going to guess, I can't nail this down yet, but I'm going to guess between either 31 or 32 A.D. Now, the reason I choose that is that we know for sure that in 33, because that's the date most people take, because in 33 A.D., the crucifixion, our, our Passover occurred on a, on, a, on a Friday. began at Friday night. And I believe that when the, when the Bible says that Jesus spent three days and three nights in the grave, that if you add it up, Friday night, Saturday night, even if you count part of Friday and Saturday, you still don't get three days and three nights. You've got to go with a Wednesday or possibly even a Thursday crucifixion in order to make the numbers come out. And we know that in 33 A.D. the crucifixion would have occurred on a Friday. 
So that means that it wasn't that year. I think in 30 A.D. from some of the studies I've done, it would have been on a on a um, a Friday as well. So we're limited to one of these years, and I haven't run across the literature yet. Maybe with the internet we can uh, now do some computer studies and nail down some of these issues. Uh, what they've done with astronomy and able and being able to track down and uh, solidify a lot of chronological data in the ancient world is just incredible and a lot of dates that we have accepted as as standard dates you go through especially in Egyptian chronology there's some new work being done I've just finished a book this last year called um, uh, Pharaohs and Kings in fact there was a uh, some of you may have seen it there was a study done or a program done on it in, on, by the Discovery Channel called Pharaohs and Kings, and the, the Egyptologist who's put this together accepts all the biblical dates at face value, which is this, are the same dates that conservatives accept. And he goes then into a lot of uh, Egyptian chronology, and he just overturns all of the accepted uh, chronological dates for, for uh, Egypt. And each Egyptian chronology, because so much has been preserved, has been sort of the cornerstone for all ancient chronology. So all of these dates are in a somewhat of a flux at this time, so it's very difficult to nail some of these things down. But if we just take, for example, that Jesus died in 32 A.D., say the Apostle Paul was saved between 33 to 34 A.D., then that means that Stephen was stoned in 33 to 34 A.D. Now, when Stephen was stoned, we studied that in our study of Galatians on, on uh, the first hour on Sunday morning. When Stephen was stoned, there arose at that time in Jerusalem a persecution against Christians that scattered the believing Jews out from Jerusalem. And the Greek word for this dispersion is the word diaspora. D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A. Now that's generally a technical term for the Jews that have been scattered throughout um, the Gentile empires from the time of the uh, Babylonian captivity on. And yet here, um, James addresses this epistle to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Well, he's obviously writing to believers because he uses the phrase, my brethren, over and over and over again, and that would refer to believers. So he is talking to believers who are part of this dispersion that resulted from the, uh, the persecution in Jerusalem. Now, we know that James, and most conservative scholars have continually thought that James was probably the earliest of all epistles. But we know that from certain clues uh, that it was written much before 40 A.D. There's no indication that James is aware of, he mentions elders but in, a, in James chapter 5, but only in an Old Testament or Jewish context. He has no New Testament ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the technical theological word for doctrines related to the church. He has no concept of, of deacons or elders or even a pastor teacher. In James chapter 3, he just recognizes teachers. So James was probably written very early, and I'm of the view now that James probably wrote this epistle as early as 35 to 36 A.D., that's very early. So he is, represents a, um, a very early con concept of uh, early forms of doctrine. That ha Paul hasn't uh, taught anything yet. None of the Pauline epistles are written. There's no, uh, uh, none of the mystery doctrines have been re revealed. So he's really focusing on a very practical aspect of doctrine in the midst of trials. And he's writing to these believers who were scattered out from Jerusalem in the midst of this terrible persecution, and a few years have gone by now to let, they, let the dust sort of settle, and he's writing to them, telling them the attitudes they need to have 
and how they need to survive as believers and utilize all of this testing as a way to advance their spiritual growth. So he writes very early, and there is a strong Jewish flavor to the terms that he uses. So when we come to wisdom here, we must understand it in an Old Testament concept. Point number two. In the Old Testament, the first time we run across the word is in Exodus chapter 35. And here we see it in reference to the jewelers and the artisans constructing the tabernacle. Exodus 35.35 begins, He, that is God, has filled them, that is the artisans, with skill. There's our word wisdom. He has filled them with skill. But this isn't some abstract wisdom or knowledge, but it's the knowledge and the ability to perform every work of an engraver, and of a designer, and of an embroiderer. Now, some of you may have worked in these arenas before. You may have done some sewing. You may have worked with jewelry. I don't know. But did you ever think that that called for wisdom in order to be be able to perform those tasks? We think of skill. And that's the idea of wisdom in the Scriptures. It's the idea of being able to skillfully take the knowledge of doctrine, what you acquire in Bible class through the filling of the Holy Spirit under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit as he apply, as you believe that and he stores it in your soul that later as you go about application the Holy Spirit takes that enables you to see how to apply that and you apply that to your life so that what is produced in your life is something that has beauty and value and brings glory to God. That's the concept of wisdom that we find in the Old Testament. It's something that is very, very practical. And it has to do with with making something artistic, something aesthetically, spiritually, aesthetically attractive about your life and my life and our relationship to God. Another passage is in Exodus 36.1 referring to the two men who headed up the operation to uh, build all of this furniture and uh, construct all the the artifacts and the jewelry and everything. The two men were Bezalel and Aholiab. In Exodus 36.1 we read, Now Bezalel and Aholiab and every skillful person. Once again we have that word, chokmah. Every skillful person in whom the Lord has put skill and understanding to know how to perform. So it has to do with taking abstract knowledge and applying it to situations in life. The Lord has put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work in the construction of the sanctuary. And then in Exodus 36.2, Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every skillful person in whom the Lord had put skill everyone whose heart stirred him, and that means that it was from their own volition that they came forward, not just, Moses didn't just pick people. You know, you always run into some kind of guy in church growth or some pastor who thinks that the way to build a church is to put people in a position where they have a responsibility. I remember when I was first in the pastorate, I had a guy come to church and said, Pastor, what you need to do if you're going to make this church grow is as soon as these new visitors come, is you need to give them some job, some responsibility in the church so that they feel ownership for this this church and then we'll see this church grow. And I said, but I don't know what they know. They may come in here with all kinds of scurry ideas. They may be immature believers. They need to learn doctrine. They don't need to start doing stuff. But you see, that's the methodology that most churches follow is let's get people in and put them to work. And somehow the more work you do, that's going to accrue to your spiritual growth. And that's just completely contrary to what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that spiritual growth comes from sitting in the pew and doing the hard, difficult work of concentrating on the teaching of God's Word, learning it, and then letting it, uh, and then meditating on it in your own soul. So, uh, point number two, we see that, that wisdom is related to skill in the Old Testament. And as part of this, Wisdom then becomes synonymous 
we see that wisdom is synonymous with the New Testament concept expressed by epinosis. E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S. This is the Greek word for full or experiential knowledge. Knowledge that is ready for application. Now the point is, how do we get application knowledge? How do we get epinosis? Someone once said the problem with most Christians is they just come to church and they fill up their notebooks with doctrine and they sit soaking sour. I heard that cliche over and over and over again. I don't ever want to hear it again. Because I don't think that's true. Just because people, I think there are a lot of people that do that. I think that there are a lot of people who confuse a full doctrinal notebook with full doctrine in their soul and spiritual maturity. But the two have are, are not equated. They have a lot to do with each other, but they aren't equated. Before you can have epinosis, if we just take it apart from spiritual life and talk about it in everyday living, first you have to have academic knowledge, what the Bible calls gnosis. G-N-O O-S-I-S. And every field of life begins with academic knowledge. Try to think of something that you're interested in, some field of, of study or hobby or something that you're interested in. When you began, you had to learn the academics about it, whether it was picking up a book of some sort to read the directions or talking with someone who knew something about it or sitting down with, with uh, someone who, who uh, knew how to use various tools and they began to teach you. And you began to just learn academic things about that study. From auto mechanics, to painting, to music, to, to um, accounting, whatever it might be, you always start learning a certain amount of just academic knowledge. And then as you begin to use it and apply it, that's when it becomes epinosis. In the spiritual life, you learn in Bible class, you learn it, the Holy Spirit teaches it to you and it's stored in your, the left lobe of your soul and transferred by, by faith, transferred by the Holy Spirit and by faith. As you accept it by faith and believe it, it's transferred then into the right lobe of your soul where it becomes epinosis. I'm going to develop all of this out a little more in a minute. This is what... Is called Operation Z. It starts up here with the pastor teacher teaching doctrine. Now, we got into a funny little uh, period there in the 70s when people got all excited about spiritual gifts, but all of a sudden, at the same time, they were getting excited about spiritual gifts and who has what spiritual gift, and you better make sure you know what your spiritual gift is or you'll never be useful to God and a lot of nonsense like that. The second thing that came down the pike was that all of the spiritual gifts were sort of, um, uh, became equated. It's like we had a, uh, everybody was reduced to the lowest common denominator and they forgot why we have a pastor teacher. We have a pastor teacher because God realizes that it, among all of the jobs, all the tasks performed by the body of Christ, somebody needs to have the ability to study the Word of God and to extract from the Word of God the principles of Bible doctrine and to be able to communicate those to people so that they can grow spiritually, so they can see how these things apply to their life and they can begin to grow incrementally from uh, infancy to spiritual maturity. So God gave certain people the gift to do that. There's two um, communication gifts in the New Testament that continue through the church age. There's the gift of pastor-teacher and the gift of evangelist. Now, at times, other people are expected to teach, but these two have communication gifts, and so it's necessary to recognize that those with the gift of pastor-teacher have been uniquely gifted to get into God's Word, study it, and teach the contents of God's Word to people. This isn't just somebody who's been to seminary or Bible college, but somebody who is specifically gifted in this arena. That the average Christian is not gifted in this arena, so the average Christian is not going to be able to extract from the Scriptures 
the principles they need to really grow and mature to spiritual maturity. We will see in our study of 1 Corinthians that the Bible refers to the deep things of God. I often uh, use as an analogy mining. I don't know if any of you have ever been out west. I remember even as a boy going to some one of these dude ranch uh, scenarios out in Colorado where they had a sluice set up and water going down the sluice and for a buck you'd get a big pan and you'd go in there and try to pan for gold and you might get a little gold dust there. Well, just about anybody can do that and, and might find a little speck, you know, uh, salting of, of a gold dust there and, and think they found something and, and it doesn't take a whole lot of equipment to do that. Just a pan and, and the ability to breathe and you can sit down and you can pan for a little gold and you might find something. And that's comparable to what the average Christian can do. But even doing that, you have to know what you're looking at. I mean, how many of you would know how to distinguish fool's gold from gold if you're looking at a bunch of gravel in the bottom of a pan? Not much. You have to know something even to use a pan and to pan for gold. But then you get along and you, once, once a miner would come to an area and he would uh, uh, pan for some gold and he might find a few nuggets in, in the creek, he would follow that bed up that, that creek upstream until maybe that as long as he kept painting finding a few nuggets here and there or a little speckle of gold here or there and then all of a sudden it would play out and he wouldn't find anything well that means that he's gotten above the vein so he'd work his way back down and find about where this was breaking off in the rock and then maybe dig around and with a spade or a shovel now he has what two more tools he's got a pan a spade a shovel a pick maybe um a double bit axe, double jackhammer, something like that, and he starts digging back into the side of the mountain to try to expose this this vein of ore to try to try to find it. That's what happens with a lot, about the level of a lot of Sunday school teachers. They have those kinds of skills. But what happens then is this guy who's operating is on his own. He can only do so much work and dig so much into the back side of that mountain, and then what's needed. You've got to bring in the heavy equipment. You've got to bring in the mining engineers, the people who really know geology, who really understand how the rocks are shaped and formed in that mountain, who can really blast their way efficiently back into that mountain to extract the really big chunks of gold ore. That's the pastor teacher. That's why you, he's the mining engineer. A lot of times people think that because they happen to get their pan out, and all of a sudden they discover a big big nugget uh, of ore here or there, that, boy, anybody can do this. Well, anybody can be lucky now and then. And under the filling of the Holy Spirit, just about everybody can see some really great truths of Scripture now and then. But to really dig into the doctrines of Scripture, the meat of the Word, and to teach what is necessary for the growth of believers takes a special gift of pastor-teacher. So the pastor-teacher communicates the Word. And under the filling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit makes this known, understandable, to the hearer. And in the New Testament, this is called pneumaticos. P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-K-O-S. Spiritually understood data. And it is transferred by the Holy Spirit to the left lobe of the soul, which in the Greek, is, it's the mind in English, nous, N-O-U-S, in the Greek. Now this is nothing more, as I said, than academic knowledge. It's a staging area. It's what, it's what we have to go through in order to get to the final product of application knowledge. Americans are so impatient. They just want to go, Pastor, I just want to come. Give me something. I'm going through pain in my life. I'm going through suffering. I've got problems with my kids, problems with my wife, problems with my boss, problems with my car. I just don't know what to do. You just give me something right now to fix it. And so they come to Bible class two or three times and then everything seems to level off and then you don't see them again for six or eight months. But that's not how the spiritual life works. The spiritual life works by coming week after week, time after time, constantly learning God's Word. It's, it's comparable to working out at the gym. You don't just say one day, golly, I'm fat and flabby and I, I've lost all my energy and all my strength and expect to get it all back. 
in one day. He said, I'm going to go to the gym. You see, we all know people like this, and maybe we've done this. We just go down there and we go through this intense workout two or three days and exhaust ourselves and get nowhere. And then we say, oh, well, I can live with it. And then we go for another five or six months. We buy a whole new set of wardrobe and a set of clothes. And then the next thing we know, that's getting tied on. So we say, well, I've got to get back to the gym again. So we run down to the gym and we work out real hot and heavy for, for four or five days this time. And we never get anywhere. We, we, there's no instant solutions. It takes time. It takes persistence. It takes endurance. With that endurance, we learn academic knowledge. And then as we believe it by means of faith, we accept it by means of faith, the Holy Spirit transfers it automatically into the deepest recesses of our intellect called in the Greek the heart, the cardia. K-A-R-D-I-A. This is the right lobe of the soul, the innermost part of our thinking where our deepest thoughts and deep convictions are held. And there... It circulates. And that process of circulation, the Bible calls meditation. Meditation. What a new concept. Let's look at the importance of meditation by turning to Psalm 1-1. The very first psalm. You can always find psalms by holding your Bible up and turning to the middle of your Bible unless you have one of these new... Um, new study Bibles that have come out that have so much stuff in the back of it that when you open your Bible to the middle, you're a revelation. <laughs> Psalm 1.1 Now this concept of meditation is really defined as concentration and focused thought. This is not the Eastern practice, which is unfocused thought. Just emptying your mind, letting everything go, and chanting something meaningless, some syllable or some sound. Biblical meditation is thought that is focused on Bible doctrine. Psalm 1, the psalmist writes, how blessed is the man who... And I want you to notice the progression here. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. There's progression. And you see this in the life of the fool... Foolishness in the Bible is contrasted with wisdom, divine viewpoint. You see movement, and then you begin to slow down, and you stand, and then you just sit in negative volition. And there you stay. How blessed is the man who does not, he's not going to walk, he's not going to stand, and he's not going to sit in negative volition. In contrast, his delight. Notice that there's something positive, there's something effervescent, there's something enjoyable about that word delight. He's excited about it. This isn't drudgery. I'm not going to Bible class because I've just got to go again. He's excited about this. He's, he, he is enthusiastic and motivated about Bible study, about learning God's Word. His delight, this is the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, in Bible doctrine. And in his law, he meditates, there's our word, he focuses his thinking for a 30-minute quiet time every other morning. No, wait a minute, that's not what it says, is it? In his law, he meditates day and night. Now, this is a figure of speech called a mirrorism, which means you take two opposites and you mention both of them, in order to pull in a totality. So day and night indicate two opposites, two extremes of the pole. What he is saying here is that in, his law, in God's Word, in Bible doctrine, he thinks about it continually. Now that doesn't mean that while you're at work, especially if you're up on a ladder 40 feet off the ground and the wind's blowing, you don't say, wait a minute, I'm going to quit thinking about what I'm doing and what did I learn Bible class the other day. Then you're going to land 
on your rear on the ground. No, but it means that as you go throughout the day, you take time to focus on, to remember, what does God's Word say? How do I apply it in this situation? Your focus is on life as a test, as a string of tests, as each day is a string of tests or opportunities to apply the doctrine in your soul. And so you're conscious. This is what's going on here in the right lobe. There's a level of consciousness about doctrine. And it's circulating in your conscious mind so that you're thinking about it. You're aware of doctrine. It's not just, well, you know, I did this on Sunday and now I have six more days or two more days till Wednesday and then I'll think about it again. You're focusing on it and you're letting God's Word sift through your mind continually throughout the day. You're thinking about doctrine. You come to have decisions. Okay, what does God's Word have to say about this? How can I learn and apply from God's Word to this situation? So the blessed man, this is the happy man. We talked about joy in the context of James 1. The man who has true inner happiness and tranquility is blessed. And in his law, he continually meditates day and night. And the result is stability. We're going to see this same idea connected in James. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, its spiritual production. Its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Now, this is not material prosperity. This is not the health and wealth gospel. This means that the idea is that you're successful. Why are you successful in the endeavors of life? Because you have doctrine in your soul, you have wisdom that plays itself out in the decision-making process so you do not make foolish decisions which end up, which end up producing calamitous circumstances and bringing about self-induced misery. Instead, you make wise decisions. The result is that you have success in achieving what you attempt to do because you understand your limitations, you understand who God is, you're submitted to the sovereignty of God in the process, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're following His leadership and walking with Him. So the result is you have success in your life. Not, not success as man counts success, which is measured by your bank account, or the number of degrees you have after your name, or, or uh, your position in the company, but is determined by your spiritual health. In contrast are the wicked. The wicked are not so. They are like the, the chaff which the wind drives away. They are unstable. Notice that imagery there, which the wind drives away. We're going to see the same imagery picked up by James when he co- contrasts the one who asks in faith for wisdom, if he doesn't ask in faith, then he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, who's like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So this same imagery is picked up by James to describe the person who does not uh, ask or pray by means of faith for wisdom. The wicked are not so, they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, I don't have the overhead with me that I need for this, but we'll just draw it up here. Some of you should still have your chart, which we passed out several weeks ago. You should keep this. I'll be referring to this frequently. It begins like this. At the cross, you come to salvation. It's very simple. Faith alone in Christ alone. If everybody's lost their charts, we'll Xerox them more and have more available. Faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There are no conditions. If you add anything to it, you will totally negate faith. Once you're saved, The next issue is spiritual growth. Now, spiritual growth, the spiritual life, is quite different from salvation. Spiritual life, the issue is learning doctrine through the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
go through life, this is a standard flow chart, you're going to come across various tests of doctrine. Tests of doctrine. This we derive from James 1, verse 3, and from 1 Peter 1, 7. That what is tested is the doctrine in your soul, your ability to take the doctrine that you have learned in the classroom of the local church, you're going to mix it with faith and apply it to your life. Now, you have a choice to make right here. You can be uh, exercise your volition, you can be positive, or you can be negative. If you are negative, then you will be under the control of the sin nature, and you will produce a life that is characterized by sin, human good, and temporal death or carnal death. If you are positive, then you go in this direction. And the production is divine good. This is good that has an eternal value to it. You have what the Bible calls life. Eternal life is not just eternal existence, but it is a quality and depth of life, a capacity for life and for love and for happiness, a capacity for joy that is, that is unbounded. We find this in Romans 5, 3 through 5, Galatians 5, 22 through 23, which describes the um, fruit of the Spirit in John 10, 10, where Jesus said, I came not like the thief to destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. We go through, as we apply doctrine, we produce divine good, we experience the quality of life, and we produce evidence or proof of God's goodness. Romans 12, 1 and 2, you prove that the will of God is good. Next stage in the flow chart, it moves on to perseverance, persistence, endurance. Romans 5, 3 through 5, James 1, 3, 1 Peter 1, 7. As we continue in this process, ultimately it culminates in the adult spiritual life. We become mature, we become complete. That's where real life begins. Not in the process of growth. Did you think that you were in real life when you were 9 years old? 12 years old? 15? No, you wanted to be an adult because you knew that when you were an adult, that's when you could really do things. That's when you could really produce things. That's where life was, was adulthood. But most Christians want to wander around with enough knowledge to be in kindergarten, and they have no vision for getting beyond kindergarten. They have no vision for getting beyond nursery school. And they stay there. The goal, people, is the adult spiritual life. Maturity. Get to maturity and stay there. That's where you begin to experience the rich, deep blessings that God has for us. As we go through this cycle over and over again towards spiritual maturity, eventually the Lord takes us home. We're absent from the body and face to face with the Lord and we have an eternal soul life in the presence of the Lord. At the rapture or the um, resurrection of the church, at that point in time, during the seven years of tribulation on the earth, something takes place in heaven which is called the Bema Seat. The judgment seat of Christ, described in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 17. The issue at the judgment seat of Christ is not to determine your eternal destiny. That's already determined. You're in heaven. That's why you're at the judgment seat of Christ. The issue at the judgment seat of Christ is to determine your position in heaven. Rewards or loss of rewards. The issue at the judgment seat of Christ is to evaluate your life on the earth, to evaluate how much time you spent under the filling of the Holy Spirit, how much divine good was produced, and that's what survives at the judgment seat of Christ, the metaphors of a huge purification fire, that all of our deeds are added up together and they're purified. That which is human good has no value. It's wood, hay, and straw, and it burns up and it's gone. But that which has real value is like gold, silver, or precious stones. It has eternal uh, significance and value. 
And so whatever's left over after the purification, after the judgment, that's the basis for our rewards and our inheritance for eternity. This is, it, it has to do with the capacity to enjoy and appreciate God and to have rapport with God for all eternity. This is our destiny. When you reach a certain level in the spiritual life, you begin to get a sense of your personal sense it's your own personal sense of destiny, a sense of that everything you're doing right here and now has to do with where you're going. It's not just living life and that's it, and we're all somehow going to end up in heaven and we're all going to get the same thing. But what I'm doing now, the decisions I make, the priorities I choose, how I spend my time, remember the Scripture says that we're to redeem the time, that all of that is included And what I'm doing right now, the decisions I make right now, will determine who I am, what I'm doing, and where I am for all eternity. It's not just let's get saved and make sure we go to heaven. The second most important issue is what are you going to do about your eternal destiny in heaven? Those who fail, who operate down here under the sin nature and go through the carnality cycle and are backsliding and negative volition and continually playing games with God and operating on arrogance. They are enemies of God. They are still believers, but they are enemies of God. And when they come to the judgment seat of Christ after their, after their death, many times a very painful death, the sin unto death, then what happens is all that they did in life was human good. All sin was judged at the cross. So our sins are not going to be judged again. They've been judged once already. At the judgment seat of Christ, everything will be burned up and they will have nothing left. They're failures in the spiritual life. They will lose rewards. And the Scripture indicates that there will be tremendous shame and embarrassment at that, at that time and for some un- short but unspecified time after the judgment seat of Christ. And then every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more regrets. The old things will have passed away and they will go on into heaven yet as through fire. That's what the Scripture says. So the issue for us in the spiritual life is living up here and the key to living up here is the filling of the Holy Spirit plus wisdom. So when we hit these tests of doctrine, James says that you you will probably encounter tests where you lack wisdom. You lack the Bible doctrine you need in order to deal with that situation. So what's the solution? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Prayer. Now this does not mean that prayer is one of the stress busters. What this means is prayer is one of the means of utilizing many of the stress busters. This is a prayer for wisdom. That if you are in your volition, if you are truly positive, God, because God is faithful, because you are a believer and God is your Father, because God is omniscient and He has known from eternity past of your situation and your predicament, so He has provided for it from eternity past, because God is love, and because all of this has been expressed to you by means of grace, God will provide the way for you to come to know what you need to know to handle the trial. Now, we were talking about wisdom. We went through part, uh, point number two. Point number three, after we left Psalm 1, is that wisdom begins with making doctrine the highest priority in your life. If there are two critical issues in spiritual growth that are going to determine your eternal, your, the quality of your existence in eternity in heaven, if one is the filling of the Holy Spirit, that's accomplished by confession of sin. The second is wisdom, the acquisition of spiritual truth. Then if that is so important, then Bible doctrine must be the number one priority in your life. Nothing should be more important 
than that. And this is exactly what we find specified in the Old Testament. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now what does that mean, the fear of the Lord? Well, often when you teach this little flow chart, and you talk about the fact that when you get to heaven, it's going to matter what you did on earth. It's going to have an eternal significance. It's going to affect your rewards. It's going to affect your inheritance. It's going to affect your capacity to have a relationship with God, the quality of joy that you have, all of these things. People go, whoa, wait a minute. And you feel that little catch, a little anxiety there. Well, that's what this means, the fear of the Lord, recognizing that there's accountability there for the actions in our lives, not in reference to sin, but in reference to what we do with all that God has graciously given us for living the spiritual life. We have more doctrine available to us today that's been distilled out than at any other time in human history, I think. It's all been there in the Word of God, but it's been studied and extrapolated and taught throughout the centuries, and we have the ability to, to stand on the shoulders of spiritual giants from the past 2,000 years and utilize all that they have learned and go forward and use that as a springboard to advance our own understanding of Scripture and God's Word. And, and yet, the, the Christian bookstores are full of books, but most of them are, are trash. Most of them are superficial. They're filled with psychology and the human viewpoint uh, problem-solving techniques of the world merged with a lot of Bible verses to make it look like it's biblical. But very few places can you go and find serious biblical tools. Begin, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. You realize how important and significant this is. The fear of the Lord relates to respect, to honor the Lord, to value the Lord, and to have a certain sense of anxiety that there are negative consequences if I do not obey the Lord. So that is the beginning of knowledge. It's also related to humility. It's the opposite. If you're arrogant, you will not fear the Lord. Point number four. Wisdom has its source in God alone and is set against the thinking of human systems. Proverbs 2.6 For the Lord gives wisdom... From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. That's the solution in James 1.5. If any one of you lacks wisdom to handle these trials, let him ask of God. Proverbs 2.6 For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. There are two competing systems of thought. And the Christian life is a life of thought fundamentally. Human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Divine viewpoint says there is only one way. There is a way that seems right to a man but the ends thereof are death. Human viewpoint says there are many ways. Now human viewpoint has a number of systems that try to arrive at truth. One system is known as rationalism. Rationalism starts with principles of the intellect alone. This was evidenced by a, a French Jesuit mathematician by the name of René Descartes. And he thought, well, let me see. If I can just figure out the universe, I can ultimately come to absolute truth. But, but what if everything around me is just some sort of illusion? What if God is this sort of cosmic, malevolent spirit who's just making me think all of this is real and it's, it's, really, it's really not. How, how, can I, how can I find truth? How can, how can I be sure that I really exist? Well, let me see. I can doubt that I see that tree. Maybe that's just an illusion. Or I can doubt you. Y'all are just an illusion. God didn't put you out there. But, but wait a minute. I'm thinking, aren't I? If I'm thinking, then I must exist. So that's going to be my starting point. And he said, I think, therefore I am. So from that starting point, he's using principles of reason alone and he tries to get to absolute truth using rigorous principles of logic. And he failed. Because you can't get there. You can't get outside of yourself. 
if you start inside yourself, how do you get out there to know anything is there? Philosophers call that solipsism. Rationalism failed, so they came along with, oh, there's a better solution. Empiricism. Aristotle was one of the great Greek empiricists. Uh, Locke, Barclay, Hume were uh, empiricists of a more modern time during the Enlightenment. But they start with sense data. Okay, we're going to go out here and we're going to collect a lot of data. What we hear, what we see, what we feel, touch, all these things. We're going to collect this data and then develop our theories based on that. Again, a rigorous use of logic. Try to come to absolute truth just like rationalism. They can't get there. It falls apart. Man, starting from a finite reference point, can't get to anything infinite. So what always happens in history, first you go through, you went through these same cycles in the ancient world and we've gone through them in the last three or four hundred years. You go from rationalism to empiricism and then when both of them fail to provide serious answers to life's questions, the result is always skepticism. Well, we can't know anything. How can we really know for sure? How can we solve the intellectual questions we hunger for? Well, if we can't do it through reason, we can't do it through empiricism, how do we get there? Well, we just know it, right? So skepticism, always, you always end up in a reaction towards mysticism. Now, this is, this is a historical commentary. We went through rationalism in the 16th century, or 17th century, empiricism in the 18th century, then skepticism in the 19th century, and, and now we're into mysticism. It doesn't matter. You, you don't have to come up with logic. In fact, logic is evil now under the postmodern system of thought. Logic is evil. Just go with what you know to be truth, truthful by your intuition. Just trust your feelings. Like the words of, uh, of uh, uh, the, the Jedi instructor in... Uh, uh, Star Wars to, to Luke Skywalker. Just, just trust yourself. Just trust yourself. That's the message of our day. Is just trust your own inner feelings. That's mysticism. Instead of logic, it's based on irrationalism. Logic is evil. The fourth system that man comes up with to find truth is through revelation. That God has spoken authoritatively, infallibly, and inerrantly to man. If we look at this, what we find is that the root of rationalism is faith in human intellect. The root of empiricism is faith in human observation. In mysticism, the faith is in human intuitions. In Revelation, the faith is in an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God who loves us and who has communicated to us everything we need. Revelation stands over against and judges rationalism, empiricism, and skepticism. Now, this does not mean that in the study of Scripture we don't use our intellect, that we don't use uh, observation and the gathering of data. But what it does mean is that we utilize logic but under the authority of God's revelation and we completely reject all the rationalism. See, mysticism as a system is just rationalism and empiricism gone to seed. It really is. It's the bankruptcy of the human system. So mysticism is almost a pseudo-system. We find this alluded to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. I want to just read through these verses sort of a summary fashion because I think they're important and it'll be some time before we ever get here and exegete these passages. But we just want to talk about the concepts here. It starts with the gospel. The contrast between the gospel and human systems of thought. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross that is the gospel, the word which consists of the message of Christ, is to those who are perishing, to the unbeliever, foolishness. He looks at this and he says, 
man, I can make so much fun out of this. It's just foolishness. So he looks at truth and he says it's foolishness. But to those who are saved, the truth of the gospel is the power of God. Now, if you want to understand something about what the Bible speaks of when it speaks about the power of God, look at this chapter. Power of God is related to understanding the gospel in verse 18. It's related to understanding the gospel in verse 24. It's related to understanding the gospel and Bible doctrine in verse in chapter 2, verse 4. And in chapter 2, verse 5. See, a few years ago, there was a new charismatic movement called power evangelism and power healing. And the emphasis was that all this talk in the Bible about power has to do with miracles. And it was a total distortion of the truth. The real power of God has little to do with miracles. The real power of God has to do with what happened to you at the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. At that moment, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit created a human spirit and immediately imparted that to you and you became spiritually alive and capable of having a relationship with Jesus Christ and with God the Father for all eternity. You became a child of God. Along with that, God did 39 other things for you at that moment which are irreversible. He gave you an incredible amount of spiritual assets which will enable you and me to face and handle any situation in life, no matter what it is. There was no problem, there's no circumstance, there's no person, there's no heartache that God the Father didn't know about and make provision for billions and billions of years ago. That is the power of God. And it starts at the cross. Verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, Man in his arrogance thinks that he knows everything because of his academic degrees and because of all of the things that he has accomplished. And God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. God is in the business of destroying arrogance because that was the first sin of Satan when he said his five I wills and was cast out of heaven. And what God is going to show is the key to glory is not self-assertion and arrogance, but the key to glory is humility and becoming a servant. Jesus came not to rule, but to be a servant, to seek and to save that which was lost. So the issue in Scripture and the spiritual life is humility and developing a, a servant mentality that is in total contrast to the human viewpoint thinking. Verse 20, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, this is divine viewpoint, in divine viewpoint, for God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, that human viewpoint, did not come to know God. In human viewpoint, rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism, you cannot come to know the God of the Bible. Human intellect says at its very root that the intellect is powerful enough to know absolute truth on its own. But God says that the wisdom of man is foolishness and it comes to naught. They cannot come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, human viewpoint. But we, in contrast to signs and human viewpoint wisdom, we proclaim Christ crucified. And this is to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles it is foolishness. It's simple. It's not complex. It doesn't bring in all the metaphysical and epistemological theories that dominate human philosophy. And that is a stumbling block. But to those who are the called, that is the saved, we studied the doctrine of calling a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, both the Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, that's human viewpoint, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world, that is, those that to the high and mighty believe that they're foolish, inconsequential people who don't have the array of academic degrees, the, the wealth, the prestige, the position. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong because the issue at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be humility developed on the basis of wisdom and application of Scripture so that you are prepared to live in the eternal kingdom of God not as an arrogant person but as a truly humble person and therein lies the preparation for eternity. And, and the base things of verse 28, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. See, Satan wanted to boast. In the five I wills, he sets forth his boast that he will be like God. And man thinks that he can somehow impress God with his works and his, his religious activity. But what God says is the value, that which I value is the attitude that says, I can do nothing, God does it all. He understands grace, that's grace orientation. And because he has grace orientation and doctrinal orientation, he begins to grow and mature, understanding his destiny, then moving on to his understanding and developing a personal love for God and an unconditional love for mankind. And he pushes on to the high ground of, of uh, occupation with Christ and inner happiness. And because of that, he has spiritual maturity. That's the key. You boast not in what you have done, but in God. Verse 30, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we'll wrap up our study tonight there. Continue next Wednesday night. Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word. Pray that God the Holy Spirit would drive these things home to us. To understand and see the arrogance in our own souls, in our own minds. And to be able to, to apply the doctrine we need in the midst of these tests. That we might have a, a real understanding of our future destiny in Heaven. And that everything that we are doing now is designed to prepare us for that eternity so that we may be ready for our inheritance that You are holding for us. And Father, we pray that we might be ready because if we are not, then that inheritance is put on hold forever and we never receive it and it will be a a loss forever and ever and we will experience shame at the judgment seat of Christ but we will have failed our Master and not heard Him say, Well done, Thou good and faithful servant. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.